Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I'm hanging out with Eric Huberman, the founder and CEO of Hawk Media. For those of you who don't know, Hawk Media is a full service marketing agency based here in Santa Monica, California. Eric has been named one of Inc. Magazine's top 25 marketing influencers and was on Forbes 30 under 30 list in 2016. In this episode, Eric shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from selling Beanie Babies at eight years old to building Hawk Media into an award-winning marketing agency. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Eric, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Let's get started. Where are you from? You're from LA, I think, right? Born here, but grew up in Ojai. Got like it. Small hippie town by Santa Barbara. Okay. Yeah. And um, how'd you get to LA? You're living in Santa Monica now. How'd you get here? Yeah, I went to University of Arizona while I was there. My dad moved back to Santa Monica. I spent a summer living in his house. What was that? My junior year? I guess summer before senior year. And was like, oh, I got to live here. He was out of town for like two months. So I had a house to myself in Santa Monica. And as a 20-year-old, that's kind of amazing. And yeah. Fell in love with the city and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to move to Santa Monica. All right. Yeah. So backing up just a little bit further, what was childhood like for you? My fiance likes to tell me that I had a blessed childhood in terms okay. of like, I grew up again in a small town, you know, very, very, very supportive mom and very kind of motivating dad. Like he liked to, my dad liked to push me. My mom liked to tell me that everything I did was amazing. And so it was like a perfect combination of being pushed, but also not losing confidence. Yeah. And then like, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood with like a horse trail around it and like rode dirt bikes and mountain bike was outdoors all the time. Mm -hmm. It was just very much like a picturesque childhood in that sense. So yeah. It's pretty good. In what ways did your dad challenge you? Yeah. So, I mean, He's entrepreneurial. He was in the waste business and in real estate, but built up a very large company himself. But his concern was, so his success really like got going around when I was like eight, 10 years old. Like he was mm -hmm. over, we were always okay, but like I was born in an apartment. Then we moved into a house when I was a few years old, that starter home, so to speak. Then we moved to Ojai where it isn't that expensive, but with LA dollars, so to speak. So we were able to get a decent home up there. Mm -hmm. And then from there, he really started to take off. And his concern was that, he didn't want to raise a spoiled rich kid. So he, he swung very far the other way where like at eight years old, the only other Eric I really knew about was Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I want to be a guitarist. That was my goal. And so I told my dad I wanted to get an electric guitar and he said, good, get a job. <laughs> and nice. to an eight-year-old, which I started, I was like, all right. Like I didn't, to me, that was normal. I was like, okay, I guess I got to go to work. So I uh, started selling lemonade and flowers on the side of the road. And I think it took me a week to make $14 and the guitar was 150 so that was like that 10 weeks like that. There's no reality way. Reality check. Well, not just that. It was reality check, but also 10 weeks for an eight-year-old is just an insane amount of time. Like right. I can't, I don't have that kind of time. Right. So then I started, uh, I saw Beanie Babies going crazy and started buying and selling Beanie Babies and ended up making in a couple of months. So it still took almost the same amount of time, but I made it was like $5,000. 
buying and selling Beanie Babies. And so this was online. I can't remember. I know that it, like it was at the beginning of eBay. Mm-hmm. So like there was a little bit of eBay in there, but most of it was like going to trade shows, putting it in like, I forgot what the recycler, I think it was, was like the secondhand newspaper that people used at the time. Mm. And so like, I, but I was, I mean, I bought one for $5, sold it for 450 Another one for $5, sold it for 150 Like I just figured out the game of it. So yeah, I rode the hype. And then I remember my parents taught me the idea of liquidation because I was like, I don't think this is going to be popular anymore. And they're like, well, then get, liquidate all your stuff, get rid of it before it loses it. So I sold everything, but like a few. Uh-huh. I, I got at a point where I had like 85 Beanie Babies and I got down to like five by the end of it and got rid of them before the hype crashed. What was the most, the one that you uh, got the most ROI on? Yeah, five for 450 was the biggest <laughs> one. And it was unraveling beads falling out of it. Like it was just like a huge collector's item. Like if it was brand new condition, it would have been worth like $2,000. Mm. So it was a just a yeah, random find. And so- Are they worth anything today? I've, I've looked up. So worth, I think it's if you can find a buyer, like technically yeah. they're worth something, but I don't think- they're... I mean, my mom like stashed all of our Beanie Babies somewhere yeah. in the basement and she's like, they're worth something. I'm like, no, they're probably yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, I think that the last time one sold, it was a lot, but it's right. like there was one buyer, one seller. So like, I think people just hang on to them unless they get something. So I yeah. still have, again, a few, but mm-hmm. I, I looked it up recently and it was like not even worth- the time to go <laughs> like try. dollars No, no, they were. I mean, it was like a hundred bucks here, hundred bucks there. But again, okay. I don't think. I think it'd take me days to find someone to buy that. Right. So you got the guitar. Got the guitar. Bought a BMX. Saved some money for a car. Okay. And frankly, just learned. Like, started to get excited about the idea of making money too. And like that. There so you're was like, this, forget music. I can make money now. Not yeah. yet. The music was. I was still motivated to be a musician until I was about. I think it was twelve or thirteen. A couple things happened. One. I watched Behind the Music with Sting with my parents and he got ripped off for like $25 million by his manager back in the day. And I was like, how'd that happen? Like, he didn't understand business. Like, all right, so I'm going to be a musician. You have to understand business. Mm -hmm. And then two, a bunch of my friends started picking up guitar and were all better than me within a year. I was like, all right, so I'm not that good (laughs) at this. Like, I like it, but I'm not that good at playing guitar. Like, I can jam, I can have fun with it, but like, I'm not going to be a professional people see, or I'm not sought out to be, to play, so... At first, I was going to go to music management school and like do the business side of music. Mm-hmm. And then around 15 years old, I was like, you know what? Music can be a hobby. Like hobbies are okay. Because mm-hmm. up until that point, like I was the guitarist, you know, like all my friends thought of music, I had to play guitar, et cetera. And like, I was like, that doesn't need to be what I do with as a profession. I'm mm-hmm. sitting next to a guitar right now. Like yeah. I still play. But it was like, I can is focus on Is that the things. guitar? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that is not the guitar. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yeah, no, I actually uh, sadly ended up selling that guitar. Like when I had a bunch of guitars, like, all right, I got to get rid of some of these and sold my first guitar and of course regret it. But <laughs> at the Damn. time it wasn't that meaningful. Yeah, yeah. So you got here to LA. So you, wait, you got the guitar and then you went to college. Got the guitar. This went- was pre-college, right? When you yeah, got the that, guitar. Yeah, no, I was eight years old, nine years old. So <laughs> okay. like, yeah, then I- You sold the Beanie Babies. Yeah, and- exactly. Stopped doing that when I was like nine years old. And then, yeah, I always did like little side hustle things throughout middle school, high school. I went, I, that started when I was six, actually, before all this Beanie Baby stuff. I, I was with a buddy. We grabbed a pillowcase. We filled it with a bunch of my parents' stuff. I decided as a six-year-old they didn't need anymore. And then I walked door to door in our neighborhood selling their stuff. And it wasn't anything that important, but it was like my dad's, you know, golf balls. He has plenty of these. I can sell right. some of them and like stuff like that. And it was like five and 10 cents. And I remember we got back and like, I split all the money with my friend 50-50 and I didn't like that because I was like, but this was my parents' stuff. Why yeah, am I giving you this half? This my idea. Yeah, my idea <laughs> and our stuff. Why do you get half? Right. But I didn't know how to articulate that, but I remember that feeling. And so 
didn't like that business. And so I didn't do it anymore. <laughs> and then in high school, I worked in the local, in a local Italian restaurant as a busboy, broke my wrist mountain biking. And I worked one day, broke my wrist, couldn't bus anymore. And they were, they can't fire me though. Legally, you can't fire someone for an injury. So they just slowly worked me off the schedule. <laughs> Jeez. Like, okay. Yeah. And then uh, I worked at the local health food store for a year. And about six months in, I was still making minimum wage. And they told me I'd get a raise in six months. So I went to the GM and was like, hey, what's going on here? I thought I was going to get a raise. I found out I was training people making about 25% more than me. Mm. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. They literally don't know what, how to do this. And I do. And they're making more than me. And so went to him. And, he's like, and it turned out, long story short, my manager was taking credit for the work he was having me do and then saying that I wasn't doing anything. So to the GM, I was just like kind of uh, whatever stock boy that wasn't doing anything, even though I was managing the cashiers, I was handling the stock, I was handling all the shelves and like the inventory of the place. And so it was, I was doing a lot and not got no credit for it. And so like, that was a big trigger for me to be like, I just want to work for myself. I don't want to deal with like someone's opinion of me to be driving my success. And how old were you? 16. Okay. Yeah. So then what happened after that? Went to college. Every summer I took a job to try to learn something. So, and that was my idea there. Like, I, again, blessed childhood. My parents paid for college. They supported me until I graduated. And so- And you went to Arizona? Arizona, yeah, mm-hmm. U of A. And so my first summer, I grew up, my dad wanted to, you know, started doing more and more in real estate as I turned into a teenager. And so I actually would intern at his office half day once a week with his, not him, but some of his guys as VPs and just I'll learn what, how do you invest in real estate? What are the numbers? How does Mm -hmm. this work? And so my freshman year summer, I interned in a real estate office for the summer and yeah, learned the ropes on how, again, real estate investment, that side of things. That's where I thought I was going to get into. Sophomore year, I had heard all the anecdotes about like, you're always going to need sales, like whether it's you're selling yourself or selling for a company or whatever it is, knowing how to sell is really important. And so I just tried to get a job as a used car salesman because I was like, it sounds like the worst sales job ever. And that means I'm going to learn a lot. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't hire me for the summer. And I was too honest. I never lied about the fact that, yeah, I'm going back to school at the end of the summer. And then Cutco, the knife company, sent me one of their standard letters. Now that I know how the recruiting works, they try to mail every single college student going home for the summer. And I, it was like, you want to learn sales? This is a great opportunity. And I was like, done. And so like, I fully bought into their program. So I broke like every new sales record for California, like all these things became one of their top salespeople in the country. And that summer made a ridiculous amount of money as a 19 year old selling kitchen knives door to door. So obviously you learned a lot about sales yeah. in that process. So yeah. what did you learn about sales? Uh, that it wasn't about selling. It was that having a conversation and presenting value and then just asking for the sale and not, you're not pushing, not, you know, like that's where people like get scared of the idea of being a salesperson is they think it's about convincing people to do something they don't want to do. And it's like, no, it's about demonstrating the value and talking people through the objections they may have because you've probably heard them before and they're generally ill-founded. Now there are people, and that's if you've qualified a lead, which is what they taught as well. Like if it's a person that owns their home, they can probably afford kitchen knives. So affordability is out. If they're over 25, they're probably into maybe cooking a little bit or cooking for their friends. And then there was a third criteria that now I can't remember, but basically all three checked off. Like they've got money, they value good things, like et cetera, et cetera. Like this does make sense for them unless they already have a set or something like that. And then even then they they taught the idea of like, you can sell one knife, that's a success too. So you don't mm-hmm. have to sell someone a full set of knives. Like everyone needs something. Mm-hmm. And so that concept has definitely parlayed into like even what we're doing now where it's like everyone does need some help with their business. It might not be everything we do, but one thing should apply generally if you've qualified that, you know, they want to grow their business, they need marketing help, they have the resources to get it, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. 
Awesome. So then you've sold a bunch of knives. Yep, sold a bunch of knives. <laughs> you uh, realized probably pretty good at sales. Yeah. And then what? Yeah, so the next summer I was told by Cutco that I was supposed to, they wanted me to open their San Luis Obispo territory and be the sales manager. And they flew me to Vegas and brought me to a training. They flew me to upstate New York and showed me the factory. They had me run an office temporarily in uh, LA for my winter break, basically. And then April, before I was supposed to launch in May, a friend reached out with an idea for a business and said, I need someone that knows sales and marketing, want to partner me on launching this. And I handed in my resignation with a slight plan of like, you can just expand the territory north and south of me into mine and they'll be good. They were obviously not very happy after spending a year investing in me, but my whole goal in taking jobs in college was to learn. And I was like, am I going to learn more running an office for a company I already know how to sell the product? I'm going to learn more starting a business. And so I decided to go with it and it was called Stormwater Maintenance Company. And Basically, California passed a law that you had to filter storm drains. If you own the property, you have to put filters in like those great storm drains that you see in parking lots. And if you don't, it's $75,000 fine per drain. Mm -hmm. So we were like, yeah, we need to help people filter, like just be a maintenance and filter company. And so my partner was the operations guy, figured out he patented a filter. He knew how to install them. He built a small team. I built the marketing and sales plan and even did our legal work. Like I found a dragon chuck alarm system contract and rejigged it to be our contract. And we started, I got us our first big client. That was in the three-month summer that we had before my senior year. And I was, there was a little bit of a push to like drop out of school to do this. I just came to realization that like I wasn't passionate about filtering storm drains. Like it was like cool to learn how to start the company. But now that it was up and running, I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, yeah, the money could be good. It's a good idea, but no. And so I left it to my partner. He turned it into a multi-million dollar business and then went back to school to finish and it took me to about like February, March before I graduated in May to figure out what I wanted to do. And then it all came full circle. And I was like, I need to go into real estate. Like I worked in high school and first year in college. And like, I really want to get into real estate. So I'm going to become a real estate broker and commercial real estate. I wasn't interested in residential. And so spent the summer studying for my license, got my license, got my job in a real estate office in West LA, moved to Santa Monica, like I promised myself <laughs> and started exactly a week to the day before the entire banking industry collapsed in 2008. Jeez. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So then, then that roller coaster began. Oh, yeah. So, you know, a lot of my friends that graduated then got their jobs retracted or, you know, even now, 10 years later, starting to like figure out what they're doing because like mm -hmm. it was rough. A lot went back to grad school just to buy themselves more time. And I spent a year doing real estate and I made $350 that year. Literally <laughs> no zeros on that, like $350. And uh, it was grueling, but I like I never really like got dissuaded. Like I didn't know any better. I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be this hard. I didn't know that like now looking back, it was like the worst recession since the great depression. But like when you're in the middle of it and you have no history to look at, cause right. I was, for myself, like I could see some people that were older than me were miserable, but I thought they were just miserable. Like it was, I didn't know that it had anything to do with the times. And so, but I did realize after a few months that this wasn't sustainable. And so like four months in, I always like, I was the first one in the office. I turned the lights on and unlocked the office. I was the last one out. Like, I liked working hard. And mm -hmm. so when nothing started to, I had no feedback cycle or validation from it, I started focusing on other things as well. And I ended up running the LA Marathon and I took the LSAT because I thought about maybe going to law school and did really well, but then realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so spending three years in law school, but not planning on being a lawyer seemed like probably a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> Even though in my head at first, I was like, that's still good because I'll have the education. It's You'll like, be yeah, learning. Yeah, but no. And did a few other things, but then started... So came full circle and the drummer in my band through middle school and high school, uh, his dad called me 
I think it was February of 2009. So I, I'd been in it, I started in October of 2008. So it was a few months in. That's when I, I, or I was about to run the marathon. All these things were coming up. And he was like, hey, Eric, I've been really admiring you for, you know, a few years. I knew this guy since I was seventh grade, I think. And he's like, you know, you're a really impressive young entrepreneurial mind. And I'm looking for someone to partner up on an idea. I really want to find a way to harness the raw entrepreneurial spirit of musicians and help them focus it. And I was like, okay, what's the business? And he's like, I don't know, put it together. So, all right. So I spent two months putting together a business plan because I frankly didn't have that much better things to do. And I wrote this basically business coaching business plan for musicians, like virtual business coaching that was 50 bucks a month and all these things. And I presented it to him and he, you know, so this is great, cool. We'll talk soon. I then didn't know if that was going anywhere. So I went back to the real estate thing. And then in July, he said, okay, Eric, I'm going to raise a million dollars for this for my friends. We're going to go do this. I want you to run it. Are you ready to leave real estate? And I was like, yeah, I mean, $350 this year. I'm definitely <laughs> ready to leave real estate. I didn't know who he was till then, but it turns out he was on the board of Men's Warehouse, had a nonprofit partner with Deepak Chopra, had another, several other companies, was a merchant banker, and also was one of the co-founders of Pay-Per-View, the original Pay-Per-View. So sharp guy, knew, had a great yeah. network. And so he brought me on board to basically be the young hustler and he brought in a team of people, raised the million dollars he promised, paid me minimum wage for two years. I, we built out that music company, got it to 15,000 musicians. It was profitable. What was it called? Fame Wizard. Okay. And so it was awesome. I mean, I can't say who, but some mis- musicians that are now big were on the platform. So it's mm-hmm. like cool to see that like maybe we had some part in that. Yeah. But I did realize that about 95% of musicians are not struggling musicians because it's a struggle to be a musician. They're struggling musicians because they're not quite actually doing anything. So our coaches would spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking to these people or months telling them the things they needed to do and they just wouldn't do them. Like there's a <laughs> lot of laziness in that world. Yeah. I'm not saying me, it's the world in general. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had a hamster wheel of customer acquisition side because Maintaining 15,000 musicians was crazy because after a month, half the musicians would churn out because they're not famous yet. No one should take a month. It was those kind of mindsets that like we tried to coach, but it w- also the money wasn't good enough to like make this all make sense. So it was slightly profitable, but never going to be big because of that churn problem. And so- It sounds like a huge misunderstanding as to what it actually takes. Oh yeah. And well, it's, it's not a misunderstanding because I think it's, people know how hard a lot of big musicians have worked. It's kind of like, you know, you look at, NBA and like oh, LeBron or Kobe Bryant, where like everyone knows that they're in the gym every day at five. Everyone knows that they work their ass off. LeBron is adamant about getting over eight hours of sleep a night. Like they take care of themselves. They do certain things. People know that. Mm-hmm. But then you've got the young basketball player, you know, that wants to be that. But then you tell them, okay, well, you, you don't get to go out with your friends on the weekend. You got to go play basketball. And they're like, well, is it really that important? You know, it's like, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you really see what people are made of. And in music, it does attract a lot of people that they're not in it because they actually truly are passionate about being a big musician. They're in it because they want to, They don't want to work. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. playing music's a lot, you know, in terms of as a hobby, is a lot easiier than going to work. And using right. that as an excuse not to work, it yeah. detracts that person too. We had some great people that were awesome on the platform, but we also had a lot that weren't. And so with the, from a business model perspective, it just was never going to scale. But it was profitable, so we couldn't shut it down. So what ended up happening is the gentleman who ran the nonprofit my partner in it ended up taking over. He also happened to run Las Vegas for Cutco when I was there. So we had met in a room. We know we met then. This was in 2006, but we don't remember it. And then fast forward, we met again in 2000, end of 2009, I think. And then he took over in like late 2010. And then I uh, 
started a t-shirt subscription company called Swag of the Month. Basically, you get a t-shirt every month, fits your style for 17 bucks. Uh, we worked with a ton of brands. We got built that whole company off of press. I just figured out how to get press for us. So we, you know, we were on the cover of Wall Street Journal. We were in- How did you do that? I got some really good advice. Uh, one guy, a guy named Justin Jarman, I'll give him a shout out. He, uh, <laughs> he, smart guy, and he actually told me how you get into TechCrunch is just tell him you raised money. And they just, at that time, they would just, if you said you raised money, they just read about you. A guy that still writes their name, Josh Constein. I submitted to their tips at techcrunch.com email mm-hmm. and he called me within 15 minutes and I said, we raised a hundred grand. There was not exactly truth to that, but I said it just to see what happened. And they interviewed us and that article launched three days after our launch. And it was a few days later and it ended up getting us like 600 subscribers from just an article, which we were two guys in a 200 or 300 square foot office with t-shirts along the wall. Like that was real money. We were mm-hmm. off the races. Built that for a year and a half and got to a point where it was either we we didn't have the money to scale. So it was, we hadn't raised any money. We had no debt. But it was like, do we shut this down? Because we can't keep up. We're working 18 hour days. We're trying to ship t-shirts. We still don't have economies of scale enough to hire people. Like mm-hmm. we're getting friends to help us, but it's not working very well. So it was, do we shut this down? Do we sell it or do we raise money? So I met a VC. He was an awesome guy, but he had just invested in something that could have been a competitor. And so he couldn't make the investment. And to me, there was no like podcast about venture capital then. Right. So I was like, all right, well, that's it. We met that one VC. We can't raise money now. And so we moved on. And then right before I was going to shut it down, to be honest, a company reached, a friend of mine reached out that owned an e-commerce holding company out of the blue and said, hey, are you interested in selling the company? Because we had a lot of notoriety. There was a lot of revenue. It just, we needed scale. And this person had several e-commerce companies could create scale. And I said, sure, I want this much money, which was enough to pay off the debt I was in after four years of startups in real estate. Yeah. And they said, no problem. You can't disclose how much and you can't disclose who bought it, but I'll take it and come pick up a check. And we knew each other. So they weren't worried about like, they're like, I'll call you if I need anything. Right. Cool. So we did it, took the money. And then, uh, yeah, that was an interesting three weeks, actually. And I say three weeks now, I didn't know when it was going to end, but I had sold a company for a decent amount of money, which got me to zero in terms of how much money I had. <laughs> and I was now had no job, no money. You're like, what now? And my lease was up on my apartment. And I was like, okay, we well, yeah, exactly what now? So it was actually pr- probably the most stressful three weeks of my life so far. Cause I like had no idea where I was going to pay the bills, what I was going to do. I stayed in our friend's place for a while. And then within three weeks, because I pushed, I didn't realize what I was worth, but I got offered six figure salaries at Warner Music to run e-commerce, Live Nation to run business development, and uh, this tiny little incubator called Science that had just launched this cool company getting a lot of notoriety called Dollar Shave Club. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to come in and coach on how to do customer acquisition, how I built the Swag of the Month brand and like marketing. Because Swag of the Month, you build it up to how much in revenue? Uh, and how much time? Yeah, we got in like a year, we got to, I mean, it wasn't a lot. It was like 600 grand, mm-hmm. but it was completely bootstrapped and it was two guys trying to figure it out that had no right. experience. So it was not crazy, but it was something. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. So we, I ended up, it it was really funny. I remember the conversation. I talked to my parents, I talked to friends and all of them were like, you got to take Live Nation or Warner. Like who who the hell is science? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to go to Burbank or Hollywood every day. I want to stay in West LA. And they're Mm -hmm. like, that's not the way you make these decisions. I'm (laughs) like, well, I get it. But I also kind of like startups and this is startups. It was sincerely like, I don't want to deny it. Big part of my decision-making was like, I don't want to go to Hollywood or Burbank. Not interested. (laughs) Location-based. Yeah. Traffic in LA sucks, so that'd mean I have to move out there. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, I, I 
I was determined to stay in Santa Monica and science was in Santa Monica. So I joined them and ended up advising on their portfolio. And one of their companies was a vitamin company that was failing miserably. And again, long story short, we pivoted it to be an activewear, women's activewear brand version of what Swagger of the Month was. Mm -hmm. But we had 2 million in funding. (laughs) So we were off to the races. And within four months, we did 500 grand in our fourth month of business. So a 6 million run rate in four months Mm -hmm. and grew the thing like crazy. And I was consulting for the portfolio and then quickly became, I was a VP of marketing for that, an owner in that. And they decided after six months of success, they wanted to vertically vertically integrate the whole business, like open a factory to make their own textiles. Like we were a retail model. We were working with mm-hmm. Lululemon, Lorna Jane, Nike, Adidas, et cetera. And they wanted to go like just our own brand. They bought the domain name Ellie.com for $230,000. They did a bunch of really, really poor decision Yikes. making things. <laughs> they literally cut off all our retail model and just overnight from month four to or six to seven, whatever it was, one month, what do we just told all our customers instead of getting all these brands you signed up for, you're just getting our brand now. Oh, wow. And so I advised against it. I pushed against it. One of the board members, I remember in a meeting, looked at me and just said, hey, you're just the marketing guy. Just market what we tell you to. Like, <laughs> I'm the only guy in here that sold a business in this space, guys, even though it wasn't a big sale, it was something. Like right. you guys have not had any success. So it's an interesting feud. And when they made that change, their revenue dropped in half overnight. Wow. And so they fired the CEO and co-founders. I had to fire half my team. I helped them all find jobs. I stuck it out for a couple months. And then they hired a CPA to come in and be our CEO because I thought it was a financial issue, which showed me how dumb my team was. And so I moved on. And uh, I took a week off to go to Mexico and then came back and a company was trying to hire me full-time. And I'm like, I'm not working for full-time. I'll consult once a week. I didn't want another job. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, we're not taking you once a week. We're going to do three days a week. I was like, fine, but uh, you're going to have to pay me 200 grand for that time. And they're like, yeah, okay, sounds great. And I was making 100 grand at uh, Ellie. So Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I just doubled my salary for three days a week of part-time work. (laughs) Like, this is interesting. What just happened? So then I, I started getting reached out to by a lot of other companies that I had built a reputation. Like the, they knew Ellie, Ellie was very obviously, if you knew the company was not a marketing mistake by any means, it was quite the opposite. And so like everyone that wanted a marketing person was like, this guy knew how to build this. He had bad backup, but like mm-hmm. I, the reputation, I was lucky enough for like the real story to get out there. And so, yeah, I got recruited by Red Bull, by Eddie Bauer, Bally Total Fitness, The Limited, bunch of startups were reaching out and I just kept saying, I'll consult on the side, I'll consult, I'll consult. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I had, you know, eight consulting clients and was doing 30 grand a month by myself and working out of a Starbucks sometimes and Amplify the incubator gave me some desk space for free just to be cool. And like, I was just kind of bouncing around town and did not working. I mean, I was working pretty hard at that point, but it was like nothing structured, nothing crazy. And I liked it. I was just advising all over the place. Yeah. But what ended up happening was, So I hired an assistant to start to help me. And then through this, I was basically helping companies set up their marketing plans and then helping them find vendors or hire people. Mm -hmm. And what I found was across the board, whether it was a big or small company, uh, they all dealt with the same problem with marketing talent, which is you have two options. You hire a team or you hire an agency. And what I found was hiring that whole team in-house for the things you need to do, not cost-effective. That's if you can find and attract the talent. And even Mm -hmm. if you can accomplish those two things, now you're operating in a vacuum. Unless you have someone like me looking at a bunch of different companies, you end up losing sight of the ecosystem pretty quick. And that's very bad in marketing. So the other option, which is why agencies exist, 
They sell snake oil. They don't have any experience building companies. They're just, at some point, someone convinced them to go tell someone that they're a social media marketer and they just start building, you know, they put a Ferrari on their Facebook profile and now they're a social media marketer. It's a ridiculous ecosystem, but it's common. And the stat I've heard recently is 23,000 digital agencies in the US. It's wow. kind of ridiculous. Wow. Now you have the one, per, that's 99%. And I think these numbers are actually probably accurate. Like you have a 1% chance of finding a good agency. And when you do, they tend to quickly want to go up market. They want long contracts, high minimums, something that makes them hard to work with. And so the kind of the outcome of all that, the conclusion is if you're not a sexy company that wants to spend millions of dollars in marketing just yet, you aren't getting good marketing talent. Right. And so to me, that's ridiculous. Why is this not a problem that's been solved? And so there wasn't this grand vision of this at the time. It was more immediate reaction to the problem, which is I'm just going to go hire my own people that I know are good from the years I've been in doing this and build a small team because I'm making more money than I've ever made. And frankly, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. So use that consulting income. I hired seven people, each with their own expertise, like a Facebook person, an email person, a web designer, et cetera. And then went back to these companies and, Said everything's a la carte, month to month, cheaper than hiring in a house. But the idea is you can spin up a team that fits your needs based on this list of services. And so why I went month to month is like, I was always on the other side of the table when people would say, I need a long-term contract. I'm like, okay, so set my expectations right. And you can tell me that like, you need to do this for a year. It's going to take this. And this is what you have to invest in it. And we can work along the way. But locking me into a contract is just artificially getting you retention, that doesn't help me. Like, screw you. Um, that scares me. That means you could be lying to me. If you tell me the truth, I have no reason to pay you for three months knowing that it's a six-month engagement. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're doing, if things are moving how you say they're going to move, right. I'll be good. Right. But if you, t- I signed a year agreement and three months in, you haven't done anything you said you're going to do, yeah, you can ch- sue me. Like, sincerely, I've walked away from those contracts many times when they haven't done that. And so to me, it was like, what's the point of locking people in? So that's how we started. And then it started to go. So that was January of 2014. And so a lot of stories in there. But uh, now at this point, we're a little over 150 people. We'll be five in a month from this week and continuing to expand and grow. And so I assume you didn't raise any venture capital. <laughs> didn't raise a dime, didn't take any debt. profitable since the beginning yep. with one person. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, people have to say the word sell. Oh, you self-funded? And I'm like, that's not really accurate either. <laughs> right. Like there was no money in a bank account. Like I didn't right. fund shit. I didn't I really just, put money yeah. in anywhere. Yeah. I was taking money yeah, exactly. <laughs> from customers. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So talk to me about the different services that you offer. I think what you guys are doing is really awesome. Obviously, marketing now spans so much. You know, you've Mm -hmm. got paid marketing and now influencer marketing and so many other facets. So how do you think about each of those? Yeah, it's... So there's an overall, like, kind of three pillars of marketing that I always look at, which is awareness, nurturing, and trust. So how you're introducing new people to your product, how you're nurturing that awareness into actual purchase, and then how you're building trust so that they actually are confident in what they're getting. Mm -hmm. And so I always check those boxes. So all the tactics that we talk about, whether it's Facebook advertising or search or email marketing, how does that fit within those three things? And are we covering all three pillars? Because it's important. Like the example I'd give is if you're not creating any new awareness, you're really just working with the existing audience. Like you're not going to grow. In fact, you're probably going to shrink because at some point people stop buying things. So like if you're working in the same ecosystem, it'll go smaller and smaller and smaller. If you're building awareness, but not nurturing it, you're going to get a bunch of people that know about you, but no one that actually buys anything. Mm -hmm. And then trust if you're saying you're great in your advertising and you're saying you're great in your nurturing, but no one's ever validated that and no one's ever heard of you, you're probably not going to do very well either. So it's those three things that are super important to build. 
And then it falls, I mean, in terms at this point, I think we have 50 plus services because we kind of cover the gamut depending on the company. It's very customized and consultative on how we bring someone on. But yeah, it all falls into making sure they're kind of doing those three things for their business. Yeah. So if listeners out there are building an e-commerce company uh-huh. and, you know, they're thinking about it or they're trying to figure out how much should, how much should they be thinking about budgeting for marketing sure. and ads and just all this to get what type of ROI or sales? <laughs> yeah. You know? So ROI wise, like the range is insane. Like we have companies that we will bring in and do 30 times their marketing spend in ROI in the first year and it'll wow. just blow out of the water. And then we have ones that come in and do two. And then we have companies that come in, this is actually pretty rare, but companies that do come in and they don't sell any product because no one actually wanted what they built. <laughs> so like predicting the ROI, like there's no crystal ball. And I'd actually, I wrote a whole article about like if any company's guaranteeing ROI, run. They're full <laughs> of shit. Like it's a, it's a great test. That is someone that like, is their knowledge of marketing is so shallow that they're going to guarantee an ROI. That's bad. Mm-hmm. And then there's, in terms of like how you should look at it, you really, like as a founder, you have to be the first driver of sales for your product. Mm-hmm. Like don't hire anyone until you're actually ready to hire someone. And so usually I say like when you're ready to spend 10, 12 grand a month on marketing and you've got like 50 grand in the bank, that's about when you want to bring someone in. If you're not there, and that could be through funding, mm-hmm. you know, funding is another way to do this and, you know, bring on a partner. But if not, like I was told when I started this company that I'd be absolutely the main sales driver for two years and it was actually three and a half. Mm-hmm. So for three and a half years, I closed 85 or more percent of the business at Hawk Media. And that's, you know, three and a half years in, we were 75 employees. And so I was feeding 75, 80 miles on my sales job by myself. And, you know, we had a couple of salespeople that brought in some of that, but I was legitimately 85% of the business. And now that's transition. We've built a whole sales organization, but it took a long time. And so the idea of like, I've got, I'm going to sell Rubik's Cubes. I'm just on the desk. And I've got $5 to my name and I've, you know, put up a little quick website and now I'm going to go find someone to do everything else for me, but I'm going to spend a thousand dollars on this. Like the logic there gets lost. Like if you can't sell Rubik's Cubes, don't start a Rubik's Cube company. Right. Like you got to figure out some strategic way, some scrappy way, kind of like with Swag of the Month, we ran with press because it was a way to organically do it without spending money. We didn't have money in the beginning. Then Mm -hmm. we started doing advertising and all that, but it it was six months before I hired anyone to help me there. And I hired a, you know, a small agency. So you have to be really careful on that when you're building out a brand. And then, yeah, again, like if, once you get to a point where you can consistently comfortably spend 10, 12 grand a month, that's when it's like, okay, you can hire someone and give them the resources they need. Because that's what I mean by that. Like you could hire either us or someone else, but like 50, 60, 70 grand a year plus some money for them to spend on marketing. Because that's the other thing people forget. Like you hire someone, they're like, go, but they don't have any resources. They can't do anything. <laughs> you're like, I need money for ads. What yeah, are you talking exactly. about? <laughs> So speaking of ads, I mean, how much should they be budgeting for that? If you're saying budget about 12 grand for the person to actually execute, then yeah. what are you thinking in terms of budget? Yeah, minimum spend you want to go if you're going to do like a social or search campaign. You want to start at about five grand a month mm-hmm. and you need to give it three, four months to perform. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it just takes time to optimize, takes time to build your brand, et cetera. But two, there's something called a purchase cycle or consideration period that people that run businesses forget all the time. It's like the most common argument we get into, uh, people take time to buy something. It's not like, you know, again, do you want to buy a Rubik's Cube? And everybody goes yes or no on the spot. So what that means is when you're looking at the results of your marketing, if you're looking on a daily basis, that's just dumb. Like that is not going to happen. And so what we've seen statistically is if it's a $50 item, again, assuming all else is equal and people actually want the product, $50 item takes about three weeks, $100 item is about five weeks, 
$200 about six weeks. And then it tapers off over time to like two, three months after that. Like you've got really long purchase cycles, like cars and stuff, but you can time that a little differently. But in general, like assume it's a month or two before someone buys the product from seeing an ad. Mm -hmm. And so generally, so like the idea of like, I'm going to spend $5 on Facebook today and then make $10 tomorrow and go like every once in a while you find that vein, but usually it's not scalable. Meaning like whatever you did will work until you saturate that small audience. And then you have no idea how to grow from there. So generally we say spend five grand a month so you can build something that's actually tested right, use scientific methodology so that you can control variables and know this is how this works and this is what's scalable. And now you can talk about what your your ROI is going to be as you scale. You'll have data around that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So you have a huge team and mm-hmm. you've probably learned a lot about hiring as well. So <laughs> <laughs> how has hiring been for you and what challenges have you faced in building your team and culture? Yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge. So let's see, if, I mean, if we're in a decent amount at this point, we've probably had 300 people that have worked at Hawk Media and 150 still here. So the first seven people I hired, one was left after six months because hiring arm's reach and casually doesn't work. You have people have to feel like they're really getting into a job, not like just jumping in with their buddy. And so that's when we started a sales or a hiring process. Hmm. That second cohort of people are still mostly here and a lot of them are executives because we put a process in place and they were working directly with me and my partner. The next challenge is people that are hired by managers. It's different when the leadership is very involved and can be there and are working with their team all the time, but that the decay to the person below them, like you have, we had, we did a bad job in the beginning of training our managers to be leaders. Mm. It's getting better. But even now, one of our man- or directors is transitioning out of their department. And the biggest thing we've learned is people work for their managers. They don't work for the company. They don't work for me. They don't work for my partner. They work for the people around them and their manager. Right. And so if they know their manager's in transition, a lot of them get scared and start to look. It's very natural, very normal. But that's definitely created a lot of turnover for us that we're working on because we've had a hard time placing someone in that leadership role. Yeah. So how do you think about that? How do you think about training your managers to be leaders? It's working with them. Like training is not, uh, you know, here's a video good, you know, in a dark room. Like it's literally here's like, a packet. yeah, it's like very much sitting there with them and showing them like, see what went wrong here. See what went right. Like, here's what I think we did. Sitting in interviews, sitting in meetings with their team. And like, it's time. Like my partner talks about all the time. Management is time. Like it's a giving someone your time. And so what we try to do there is like, no one should manage more than seven people. It's a completely inefficient thing to do. The more you have, the less efficient you can be. And that's when stuff falls apart. So every team, as they hit seven, we're like, okay, time for someone to be a leader. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be like a, you know, and so it gets top heavy at times, but yeah. it's, yeah, that's usually the rule of thumb is seven people can report to one. Interesting. That's a great rule of thumb. Yeah. And how do you think about failure? I mean, tell us a time when something went really wrong, whether it was with a client or someone you were working with. When was a major moment of failure that you recovered from? Yeah. April of this year on tax day and everything, we had overinvested in marketing to a point that was completely inefficient and had someone spending a lot of money that shouldn't have been. Mm. It was one of the times we took our eye off the ball on that side. We overhired to think that it was going to work. So we got ahead of that, which was also a mistake. We opened our venture arm and overinvested in startups. So we didn't have a lot of capital because we had always been profitable. So we're like, we don't, we can, we make it, we can spend it. Like we don't need this money. We've been profitable. And then we paid taxes and all in all, we ended up with a million dollar payroll in April with $13,000 in the bank. Oh my God. Yeah. It's a good day. Um, But I have a, definitely have urgency when I need to solve a problem. Like I do really poorly. I don't wait well. I like, I need to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the day 
on the phone with my partner, figuring out everything, figuring out cuts that we need to make. We didn't, it sounds really heavy, but we cut a few people that were completely needed to go anyways. So, you know, we got rid of a few people that were just non-performers that was like, well, now's the time. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're usually pretty bad at firing quickly, which is not a good thing. We need to get rid of people faster that are not the right fit. And that was a great kick in the butt to do so. We cut back on ad spends. We delayed some payments on some bills that like we could wait till the next month. And then I ran Performa like, okay, so where should we be now? Like, where are we trending on revenue? Where are we trending on cost? And can we get this to oh, lean enough to like, we don't have to be majorly profitable again, but we at least need to give ourselves time to catch up on a revenue standpoint to all the costs that we've incurred. Right. Oh, and I forgot to mention, we've also throughout the year hired eight new VP level people. So full executive team costs a lot of money and doesn't yeah. perform for a while. So mm. all that, everything I just said all at once. So we reacted and, you know, did what we needed to do and got through it without crushing the business, needing to take on debt, needing to find an investor. Like we did it ourselves. Taking a loan. <laughs> exactly. And now we have a line of credit just in case we ever mm-hmm. get in a short-term situation like that again. If that 13 grand had turned into a negative 13 grand, we had no options. Right. So that was close, but learned a lot. I mean, we definitely, it was a really good timing to be introduced to our own mortality yeah. and be a lot more responsible in the things we do. Yeah, that's a big wake-up call. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. So, you know, being a founder is really all about pretty much dealing with that kind of stuff. Like the really hard stuff is... Yeah, it's being an executive. It's yeah. being a C-suite. It's being any type of leader. Like yeah. your job is problem solving. Mm-hmm. Just get used to it. Like yeah. it, we used to sit in meetings here where like, if we can just get through these things and it'll be better, then we can just get through these things and it'd be better. And finally, <laughs> I was like, guys, like Tim Cook's dealing with like Chinese tariffs right now and pulling his fucking hair out. And he's got the most profitable business in history. Like... This doesn't end. It is always this. It's not just that we'll be fine. It's also that like you have to learn to find a mindset of like this is fun and challenging, not Mm -hmm. these are problems and like I'm stressed. Because that's how you get entrepreneurial burnout. That's how you get, frankly, suicide. All these things that are prevalent in entrepreneurs is because you take it sort of hard. And it's like you ask how I take failure. It's like it's not really failure. Like, okay, so we did a few things wrong. Moving on. Like we're still here. Like I talked to one of our team members that had a rough year. We just had our executive retreat and they were talking about how they failed, they failed, they failed. I'm like, you, your team group, 60%, like revenue team, et cetera. You have all these success stories, all these awards, all this, all that. Yes, these problems too, but happens to be a Chicago fan. I was like, so did Jordan win the national championship every year he played basketball? Right. And he's like, no. He was like, every time he went, he won. Like, well, yeah, okay, 6-0 and in the championship. I, I Now I have the numbers, but he played 15 years and won six times. So if you plan think that everything's going to go smooth and you're going to just crush it and be the best company in the world all the time, you're just delusional. Like, be okay with the loss, learn from it, understand why, and then don't do it again and make sure that you improve off of that. Yeah, that's awesome yeah. advice and, and good perspective. Yeah. You know, I think there's so many questions around how do they do it? You, no. know? Yeah. As, you know, it's really just this mindset. That- yeah, it's in taking it day by day while keeping an eye on like where you're going because I've definitely had periods where I lost sight of like what the overall vision is and mm-hmm. that trickles down, like culture trickles down. If you're yeah. like, what the hell are we doing? Everyone starts going, what the hell are we right, doing? So right. very, contagious. very clear on where we want to go now. But it, I definitely had a period right after that April point that I was like, I, I was too focused on getting that right-sided that I lost vision of like, where are we going as a company? And now I'm back on that. It's been good. Yeah. I think that's just human, right? Oh, like yeah, we have no. those times where we're like, oh man, do I, am I going to be able to get through this? Yes, I will, but Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> and that roller coaster happens. But again, it's like, you can't take any of it personally. That's right. the thing. Like things happen. It's okay. Right, 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 right. So how do you define success? 
I'd say the most important thing is sustainably doing something you love every day. I say sustainably because, yes, you need to make money. You need to make a living, whatever that means to you. But and you got to just enjoy it. Life's too short to just like it's not just about money. I know plenty of rich people that are miserable. And that's to me is not success. Right. Right. And so when the times do get tough and you've got to have that mindset, what do you do? You do anything to stay persistent and patient or whatever? Like, what do you do? Exercise is incredibly important. Almost every founder says that yeah, that I interview. It's, yeah. It, and because the times that I've like put it aside, like I have a very smart fiance that I was like, I just don't have time to work out as much as I used to. And she's like, you don't make the time. If you have time, you don't make the time. Yeah. Like, fuck. Put you in yep. check. Yep. Need, <laughs> and I love having people that put me a check around me. Um, good to have a significant other that does. So that was that's a big part. Eating healthy does help. I have not been good about that the past few years. And recently, like, cut it all out. I was like, okay, we're going full bore with this. Yeah. And I definitely, like, it's funny because the problems day-to-day don't change. Like, the things I deal with every day are not the same problems. I'd be really bad. But, like, they're all standardly, like, similar types of stuff that I have to work out how we're going to grow more, how are we going to deal with a client that's going crazy, how are we going to make our processes better, how are we going to retain employees, how are we going to retain clients, how are we going to build sales, all these things that I'm working on every day. And literally, depending on if I've slept well, worked out, <laughs> ate well, is the difference between me being like, yeah, guys, we're going to do this. Okay, here's the solution. Here's, and like a lot of energy or, oh, why am I doing, I just want to go home. Like it's, right. that's the difference. So Right, and affects your energy yeah, a lot. Yeah, it really does. So when, I mean, going to that, what you just said with, you know, a customer not being so happy, are there things that you've done or advice that you want to give to maybe, you know, entrepreneurs out there that are going through a tough time with a disgruntled, you know, uh, a customer? Yeah. Uh, it's about, I think it's about 3% of people are assholes. Like <laughs> last week we had a guy, I can't, I'm not going to give too much because I don't want it to get yeah. back to them, but hired us for something that we were, I mean, It was in writing in both our proposal and service agreement, super specific. I watched the emails back and forth. Everything was very clear and then claimed we completely pulled the veil over and lied to him completely and wants all his money back. And we've put three months into work into this, Mm. but we flat rated it because it was a friend of a friend. And so we charged him for six weeks of work and did three months of work and he wants all his money back. But then he doesn't want to sign off not using the product. He's like, no, but I, I put my time into this too. This is mine. So it's like... (laughs) <laughs> Very mixed messages where he wants to use the thing we created, but he doesn't want to pay for it. Right. That shit happens. I mean, at this size, we have 350 active clients. Like that shit happens once or twice a month. Yeah. And what it is, is just some people just suck and it's yeah. okay. Move on. No, like, <laughs> and be come to terms with the fact that like what goes around doesn't always come around either. Like some of the people that I've worked with that were complete dickheads that I would never work with again have been very successful. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, you have to just be okay with it. Shrug mm-hmm. it off. I mean- People love to throw the idea of lawsuits around. People love to do shady stuff. And at this point, we've been sued, I think, six, or we've been sued 12 times or so, six by one person. Oh we've never God. lost any of these. We've never been wrong. We've never done anything wrong. But people love to try to, like, be shady. People, you know, you give an inch, they take a mile. People like to take advantage of situations. And you. everyone does the same thing when the roles are reversed. We remind our team of that, like, I'm a pain in the ass client too. I push back. I won't pay bills if they're not delivering. I, you know, raise my hand and I get, I pry and pry and pry what I can out of vendors. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a little respectful, but our clients do the same thing. And so knowing that as a business owner, like yeah. it's their job to get as much out of you as possible. Don't roll your eyes. Know yeah. that that is. Yeah. Play the dance and it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, What's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? Hmm. Definitely learned a lot, but I'm trying to think like something that would have helped me up front. Yeah. I, I got really good advice early, actually, from my dad when like one of our first big fires happened 
in terms of like what something that like I thought was the end of the world. And I called him and was like, oh my God, this all happened home. This long story. And he's like, yeah, that happens all the time. I got to run. Talk to you later, bud. Quick. <laughs> like, uh, and it really is that it was an early lesson that was a super valuable lesson, which again is like, that's your job. Yeah. Right, fire. Right. Problem solving. Congratulations. Welcome to entrepreneurship. Like, right. That is your job. So the best is like calling another founder about what you're going through. And they're like, they tell you a story oh, yeah. that's like 10 times worse than what you're going through. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. It's the, the story of running lean on money halfway through this year. I talked to like, I'm in a thing called YPO, which is for founders that are at more than 12 million in revenue, more than 50 employees. Like they've all kind of gotten somewhere mm-hmm. and every single one of them are like, oh yeah. And then one guy, he's like, he boots just strapped his company to a hundred million in revenue. And he goes, yeah, how about this? I got to a point where cash got so tight. I had to buy or borrow a quarter million dollars from my mother for my hundred million dollar company to make payroll. So you think you had a bad day? <laughs> well, at least he had a mom to borrow it no from. No shit. My I don't God. know what mom has 250 grand. She'll just hand over. That was a surprise. Right? Yeah. But that's the point being like, even though we got tight, we were still profitable. And, you know, we also a little bit more ease on that side of it. We had taken distributions out every year. Like I had other investments. I had other things like the company was not about to go under, but it was close enough to like, we have to solve a real problem. Mm -hmm. But I was like, we need to fix this and not let this happen again. But like, you know, we didn't get ourselves into as bad of a place as it quite sounds. But like, yeah, this happens to every business you get overzealous and you overexpand Starbucks, which is still crushing it, but they closed 600 stores a few years ago, like happens. Yep. (laughs) Things go wrong. It's normal. So limiting beliefs. Have you had limiting beliefs maybe early on in starting your business that you had to overcome? Like a limiting thought about yourself or your business? And everybody that that knows me. Because I guess my perspective is that obviously building a company is very much a personal development journey. Yep. So in that sense, what's something that you've learned? Okay, yeah, because I was going to say, in terms of any type of like lack of confidence or idea that I can't build this into a billion dollar company, like has never been to almost a fault sometimes. But there was a point where I took a trip. So there's this conference in France that I go to every year, a marketing conference called Can Lion. That's awesome. It's in Cannes. And I have close friends, family lives in Monaco. And so I'll go visit them and I've been able to, it's a really nice perk of the business. I've been to Monaco like every year for four years now. And I'm sitting up at a bar looking over like the harbor and everything with a friend. And there's these boats, yachts that are, you know, 250 to 450 feet long, half a billion dollar boats. I'm looking out and I'm like, you know, the way I'm running this company right now, I will, could never buy one of those. No matter how like much I push, like I am not going to get to a point that that is in my future. Not that I want that boat, just to be clear, but the idea that I can't have that in the way I'm operating because I was the main, this is right before I made the switch with sales. I'm still 85, 90% of business. I take a month off and there goes, you know, 8%, not 7% of our business for the year. Right. So it's like, there's no scale in that. And so it forced me when I got back, I would always stop doing sales immediately, like overnight. And we declined for two months before coming back because I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't afford to be the main driver of sales. Right. And so started pulling back from that. And that was a big, big learning to get to the next step. Yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. So I know we've got to run. We're running out of time. So just two more questions. Sure. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Just get shit done. I mean, that's what's written on our wall here. Like I talked, again, not wanting to say too much because it would be insulting, but I talked to someone recently that was telling me about all the things they're involved with and working on. And I was like, and I, I was trying to be respectful, but also like, so what are you actually doing? Like, oh yeah, I'm working with this team on this and we're building this and we're working on this and we're going to innovate here and we're doing this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but like, what'd you do today? Like, right. explain that. Like, what are you actually doing? Like, don't get caught up in the 
fucking buzzwords and hype and yeah, all, all that. Talk. Yeah, all the talk. Like, yeah. just go to work. Like, right. go get something done and yeah. do, focus on something that you know how to do or can learn how to do, but then just go do it. Right. Go make money at it and keep going. Like, yeah. you look at every business that's massive now, it's starting in a dorm room or a garage. Like, they figured it out pretty quick. They didn't, like, yes, Facebook raised money because they wanted to stay away from advertising. And that was the first that I know of, of like really avoiding that monetization strategy. But like Mm -hmm. Apple was a business from day one. He built some computers in his garage and sold them locally. Like Google too. Like these companies made money and like, it's really important to just like execute, get it done and go. And if you're not the, if you need to raise money to get your product to market, you have the wrong team or you're the wrong person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice. And what's next for Hawk Media? What's yeah, going on? Yeah, uh, you know, we're hired a corporate development person. So we're going to be buying agencies. We've bought two. We're looking at a lot of acquisitions. We're going to expand into New York shortly. We're looking for the right people for that team. We're raising a venture fund and building out a venture arm to the company because we've done a decent amount of angel investing and been, have been very successful. And, you know, our mission here is to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And that's not only done through marketing. So we want to be able to bring money to the table when it makes sense. And when we can be a strategic partner to the company, aside from being their marketing partner, I mean, like what we do complements what they do, et cetera. So that's the short-term stuff. Long-term, you know, we're really trying to build the most prominent growth partner to companies in the world. I mean, we, I see this as becoming, you've got you know, the big four in accounting, I want to be the big one in growth. Like I want yeah. to be the company that like, it's like if you're going through an IPO or a major audit or something, you hire one of the big four or you're an idiot. Like <laughs> it's just, that's generally what happens unless you have some direct relationship. That is how it works. Mm-hmm. I want that on our side. I want to build something that it's like, we built something so sustainable and so solid that like, if you don't hire us, what, what are you thinking? And we're, we're getting there. We have a lot of reasons that that is the truth already, but I want to get that at scale that we can service a lot of businesses. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck yeah. with all of that. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again for being on the show. Yeah. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Keep on climbing.